Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. Now. does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear west turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta This. Did you see this story? People are now so anxious to be talked about in the uncontrolled airspace off-field landing of the week that <laughs> they are making up off-field landings. They are yeah. calling in false ones. So this is, you've seen this story, right? This is like, uh, where is this? I think of this as being Salt Lake City. Is it really? It's They're uh, inventing stuff? There, yeah, this this came out of Logan, Utah. So. Logan, Utah. Authorities have been unable to confirm that a single-engine plane crashed Wednesday. This is a story from a couple of weeks ago, um, in Utah or Wyoming. And the Federal Aviation Administration says the report from a sus- supposed pilot appears to be a hoax. So somebody apparently phoned it. Now here's the part that gets me, by the way. All right, they they claim they can't find this guy. They can't figure out who phoned this in. All right, even though it was phoned in from a cell phone. Now, I was under the impression that, you know, if no one else, the NSA had a good handle on where cell phones are all located. I don't understand. I thought, when I first heard this story, I thought, oh, he called it in over the radio. You know, he phoned ATC, or he, you know, called ATC and declared an emergency and then disappeared. And that would be hard to track down. The fallacy is that the NSA won't track down a cell phone to save a life. Only to preserve the government. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, you take your eyes off that terrorist ball for one second, and you may actually do something good. And we wouldn't want that to happen. 45? You know, sure, neutrality of badness. 45? 45 seconds thing. before we got into politics here on the podcast the this other, week. The other thing oh, no, here that was is, aviation is, security. Yeah, okay. Jeb, go ahead. The other thing here is if a plane crashes in the forest and no one hears it, did it actually crash? <laughs> well, that's my point exactly. That depends exactly. on whether John and Martha King were on it. Oh. Ah, yeah. yeah, okay. All yeah, right. But if John and Martha King were on it, they would have definitely found it. Um, more than likely. More than yeah, or, uh, you know, or uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Sir Crazy Man. The, uh, oh, yeah. Richard the, Branson. Oh, okay. doesn't narrow uh, it down uh, a whole lot. I thought you were talking about the barefoot kid who steals airplanes. Oh, no, he's gone now, hon. No, he's on it's the loose again. We've no absolutely way. concluded yeah, that he's, he's on he's the loose. Yeah, he's locked up. I, I hear he's making he's, sandals. He's incarcerated. <laughs> That's oh, what yeah, everyone says. They got him I... making flip-flops. So let's see now. On another piece of oddball news here, I think it's oddball. Maybe I'm sure there are some people who take this incredibly seriously. All right. Um, EAA is conducting a survey. All right. Um, They want to know whether or not we would like them to run the movie Airplane as one of the uh, half dozen or so uh, movies that they run uh, in the uh, theater, the uh, uh, what do they call the theater, the uh, fly in theater um, at Air Venture this summer. And uh, so everyone can go to uh, ea.org slash ehotline slash poll and uh, vote on yes or no. And uh, The questions are perfect. Yeah, read them. What do they say? Actually, they are, yeah. Uh, and, and they won't tilt the results one way or the other. Yeah. The question is, should we show Airplane at the fly-in theater? And, Jeb, what are the two possible answers? First one is 
is yes, but was serving the chicken or the fish. Yeah. <laughs> and the second, the second one is, of course, no thanks. I prefer movies about gladiators. Now, what's the gladiator? Didn't they run a gladiator movie last year? Is that what the joke is all about here? No, 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 no. The 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 um, <laughs> the Peter Graves when the kid goes up to the cockpit, oh. Peter Graves says, you know, Jeff or whatever your name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, you, do you like movies about gladiators? Yeah, okay. uh, among other things. I, that he I does. remember that now. I remember that now. Uh, anyways, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. what, what, what? It, it should not surprise you to learn I have the DVD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, just don't call me Shirley. As of today, as of uh, December twenty first, uh, the uh, results of this poll are overwhelmingly in favor of showing the movie Airplane. Seventy seven percent of the respondents are uh, saying yes. Uh, um, so we'll see how that continues. But it seems to me it's a no brainer. Yeah, we want to see the movie. All right, that's. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't showed that movie before. Have they not shown it before? I guess. I guess not. I don't know. I'm sure they've not. I don't I'm sure, think they surely have. they haven't. Surely they haven't. You know, it, 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 <laughs> yeah, okay, it's Jeff, one of those movies that in, in, in some corners they don't like it being associated with with aviation because it's so truly Silly. Fun and funny, <laughs> tr- funnily true. Yeah, well, funnily true. Is that something to do with the funnel? Is really quite special in it. <laughs> What's that, Amy? I'm sorry. I said the air traffic controller is really quite special in it. I know. Oh. And, yes. You know, I mean, but they make fun of absolutely everybody. So uh-huh. come on, who can be insulted? Yeah, even exactly. the even the singing nun. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It, 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 it would be a hell of a week to 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 stop stop sniffing glue. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. All right, boy, all right, boys, let's get some pictures. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just think that's funny. <laughs> Finally, we have a uh, an interesting little... This is based... You know what? This site, it's called brighthub.com. Uh, and uh, as near as I can tell, Brighthub is a place where people write little uh, uh, kind of attention-grabber web you know, postings so that... Uh, they can put ads next to them, but every now and then there's an interesting one. Uh, <laughs> okay, I, I, there's there's a joke in there somewhere, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> it's there. Okay, it's a web joke. Oh it's a... man. Anyways, um, this this particular story that I caught my attention is a brief piece called "The Best Ten General Aviation Airplanes of All Time," and I saw the headline in uh, in some sort of synopsis someplace, and I thought, oh, that'll be an interesting list. That'll generate some good conversation on the podcast. Um, but it's a fairly ho hum list, if you ask me. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to look at it. Yeah, yet. no, I agree with you. All I right? mean, I mean, it's these probably are pretty boring airplanes. Yeah, I mean, they're great airplanes, but there's I nothing. I mean, very I've, exact- I've owned some of them, but even still, yeah. So the list, let's see, we get on the list real quickly here. Um, and it doesn't really organize them like in the, you know, number 10, number 8, number 9, number 8, so forth, down to the number 1 airplane. It just kind of has them grouped by functionality. So first it's got single-engine fixed-gear airplanes, and of course it's got the 172, it's got the 182, and it's got the, and it bunches all the Piper Cherokees into one big group, which I'm not sure if that's a real, um, you know, useful way of looking at it. And then they've got the Cirrus SR-20 and SR-22. There's, there's one glaring error I see right off the top. What's that? Under the Piper Cherokee paragraph, the yeah. last sentence, the Warrior and the Arrow have retractable landing gear. Which they don't. The right. Warrior does not. Just the Arrow, yeah. Yeah. 
And then, and then you, it's good that you point that out because the arrow uh, is uh, is uh, and the warrior in this particular case are grouped under a fixed gear, um, even though they admit they have retractable. The next section is single engine retractable. Under six single engine retractable, we've got the Beechcraft Bonanza once again casting a very wide net, if you ask me. Um, we've got the uh, Cessna 210 Centurion and the Piper Saratoga. And then finally, we have. Oh, and by the way, it's a page jump, so it generates some more page views here. All right. Well, they don't. They also don't distinguish between the fixed gear and the retractable gear versions of the Saratoga. No, they don't. Uh, You're right. And and they say the Cherokee Six was renamed the Saratoga in 1976 to replace the Comanche in the Piper lineup. That's no. not true. It was it was renamed the Lance. Well, let me let me yeah. rephrase that. The retractable they, they came out with a retractable Cherokee six in seventy six that was named the Lance. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Now whether it, whether it replaced the Comanche or not is another issue. They never they never have replaced the Comanche. Probably no, they never really have it. No. Probably never. And, 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 and you know the toga by any other name is still a, a, a Cherokee. Right. Right. And then finally, they complete the list with uh, three, what they call the twin-engine aircraft, uh, the Beechcraft Bonanza, the Piper Seneca, and the Cessna 421 Golden Eagle. I've never heard it referred to as a Golden Eagle. But, it oh, is yeah. a Golden Eagle, is that but what they call I it? still think that they skipped right over the Cessna 310, which would have been more appropriate mm-hmm. but in mm-hmm. that position. I think so, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, what so makes too. the 310 more, uh, more uh, you know, well, two, deserving two of greatest two, airplane of all time. Two words. Yeah. Two words. Sky King. Yeah, thank you. Well, there you go. Okay, absolutely, absolutely. What other airplanes should be on this? Well, let me let me start differently. Uh, any of these really kind of don't even belong on the list? I mean, these are all decent airplanes. No, these, these are all, I mean, it depends on what your, what your criteria are. Uh, popularity, longevity, safety, durability, all of these, I think, qualify. Um, but the, the most glaring error here is the Piper Cub. Yep. Yeah, the Piper Cub's not on there. The 150, 152 line's uh, not on there. Yeah, and good sure. God, just, you know, three quarters of us started in one. Exactly, right. exactly. Or the Piper Cub. Yeah. And then they also uh, have pretty much lumped, you know, general aviation as being small, you know, four-seaters, uh, mm-hmm. piston airplanes. And, and uh, I would add the Beach 18 at the other end. In, in absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and then things like DC-3s, you yeah, know, certainly I, I are the, the greatest. Yeah, I think the three airplanes with the longevity record are automatics, and that would be yeah. the Bonanza, the Skyhawk, and the Twin Beach. Okay. Yeah. Well, and the Skylane. I wouldn't leave the the Skylane out of that. There's a heck of a lot of them out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's any, true. any any list that has a 172, I think, also has to have the 182. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, I, I I'm don't get me wrong. I'm a big proponent of parachutes on airplanes, and I love the Sierra to death. But I'm not sure that after only 10 years, we can quite rate them yet as one of the best of all times. Certainly, that's, that's one, a good point. certainly a top of the line airplane in what's available today, but in terms of the last seventy years, I don't think it's quite yet made its bones. Yeah, but it pushed the envelope on the glass cockpit in a general aviation airplane. Well, it, it was first. It did, and it didn't. The first year, I did not come with glass cockpits. No, it um, didn't. But. But that did push the envelope on on plastic airplanes, yeah. and an airframe parachute, and and push the envelopes on uh, on uh, speed and efficiency. Um, and there knots, are a lot of them. Two hundred knots here is quoted in this in this thing is achievable 
with an SR-22, but only one that's turbocharged and, and only at, at altitude. So um, you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt, too. Fair mm-hmm. enough. Fair enough. But there are yeah. a lot of them, and I, yeah. I get there, the there feeling are. that that is how you made the list. Yeah, D- Dave. I mean, Dave brings a good point, though. These are, you know, all of these other designs have, you know, go back into the fifties and sixties. Agreed. Um, and um, the Cirrus don't. Um, and it's a good point. You know, give it some time. Whether or not they should be on the list, I would tend to argue that. Uh, yeah, it's my mature to put them on this list. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and maybe instead, in their, in their stead, put the, uh, the Cessna 150, 152. I wouldn't argue that. Or, I, or, I wouldn't the, agar- argue against yeah. that. Yeah. I wouldn't argue against it at all. Yeah. I, I think that's on your side. I think a representative of the M20 Mooney line should be on your side. That's, that's a very good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's. that's, that's it's it, sad fortune for it today, notwithstanding. Uh, it still is uh, hard to challenge it for efficiency uh, okay. and good speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, admittedly, it doesn't have the space of the contemporary, the, the, the Columbia slash Corvallis or the Cirri. Uh doesn't quite have the aerodynamics, but then again, it has cachet that they're still a long way from earning. Yeah. What about... Uh, and it's efficient. Didn't you say efficient? Oh, uh, man. <laughs> it's still more efficient. It is. It is. What about... It does, uh, it, it does faster it on, on less gas. Yeah. yeah. What about experimental aircraft? Are there any experimental aircraft that rise to the uh, level of being... Uh, well, well, now, we're how, starting how a new list not, here, right? Yeah, I was going to say, but how could you, if you were going to do that, how could you not put an RV-7 on that list? That's what I was going to say. I was going to lump all the, all the RVs together. I was going to do the same, not least of which because I can't really distinguish them. <laughs> <laughs> Some sorry, have. Did I, did, oh, you're did, bad. Did I, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, the RVs, um, the the Rutan um, singles, um, and I got the, I got the a easy, the long the easy box, the kit yeah. box, the kit, kit box. box. Do you yeah. have any idea how Absolutely. many kits there are out yeah. there? Yeah. Right. I'm not sure whether I'd go with the kit box or its predecessor, the Avid Flyer, though. Well, there's an argument about whether that was its predecessor or not. <laughs> we're not going into it on this show. Yeah, we're not going to go there. That, that, really? Oh, no, wait a minute. No, see. That's, been, that's, that's been argued for like 30 years now. So. Uh, okay. Let's just say there's a lot of them out there. Yep. Everybody's got their side. Oh, it's it's yeah. a Hatfield-McCoy kind of thing. Yep. Oh, yeah. David, name for us one or two of the classic ultralights that have been around for a long time. Well, the, the, the Quicksilver, the Iper Quicksilver, certainly would be the, the king of that list. Uh, it dates back to a foot-launched membrane, fixed-wing hang gliding designed uh, with a swing seat and a rudder. Wow. It had a tail with no pitch control on the tail, but it did have a rudder because the fixed wing it was a, a Hershey bar wing membrane with curved battens in it. It didn't flex, so you needed to rudder to kick in a little yaw, and then it would roll yaw couple into a turn. Uh, it, it evolved into uh, a line that's still produced today, the Quicksilver 500, yep. and, uh, uh, good airplanes. Uh, the uh, Max Air, originally, the Max Air Drifter, the little single-seat DR-2 
277. Had a single cylinder, 27 horsepower Rotax engine. Uh, a full three day double surface uh, Hershey bar wing with full span ailerons. Tail wheel pusher. You could soar that puppy with the engine off right. on, on, say, 150 foot a minute uh, up day. And, and who didn't who didn't love the Mini Max? The Mini Max was great, but these are way before Mini Maxes ah, came along. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, David, I don't and know. At, the, uh, and in the uh, CGS Hawk. There you go. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's the one I was going to uh, suggest should be on the list. So there's a yeah, lot more. It's still around today too, like the uh, like the. Uh, well, actually, all three of them can be bought today. So yeah. But so this, to sum to sum it all up, though, the the the, the best airplane. Is the one you've got. Is the one I'm... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, welcome, folks. Welcome, folks, to episode 218 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Tuesday evening, December 21st, 2010, first day of winter uh, here in, well, probably everywhere, right? I guess, yeah. <laughs> well, in the northern hemisphere. In the northern hemisphere. It's the first day of something. Very happy ho-ho. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me here in the virtual hangar this evening, three of my good friends. Uh, first of all, Dave Higdon's out there. Join us from Wichita, Kansas. Hey, Dave, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm jingle belling. I got a fresh bottle of single malt, and uh, the uh, Christmas shopping's pretty much done. And uh, I hate put the you. bride on a smoker about two hours ago, and uh, so it's just the dog, the cat, and me for the next few days. Well, it's going to be a party! Whoa, look Absolutely. out! Absolutely. <laughs> and also We're here in the vir- have over the raccoon and the possum. <laughs> also here in the virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Good evening, Jeb. How are you tonight? I'm fine. I'm worried about the cat and the dog. Now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> family podcast. Family podcast. Uh, uh, now it's warm. It's warmed up a little bit. We had a bright, sunshiny day. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah. Uh, the birds are the birds are singing. The sun is warm. All is right with the world. Yeah. And uh, speaking of it warming up, uh, also Amy Lavote is with us tonight. She's talking to us from just up the street from Fort Myers, Florida. Hi, Amy. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Hey, did anybody see that moon last night? Because somehow or other, I just woke up about 3.45 in the morning and stepped out onto the porch and looked up. And there it was, blood red. Oh, really? Total eclipse of the moon. I missed it, although I did wake up about that time and I knew about it. I just forgot about it. Yeah. And didn't didn't walk outside. I'm I'm, I'm kind of annoyed that I didn't. I'll have to do it again. I think there's one in 2094. Yeah, I'll have to do that one. Put it on your calendar. I know. Yeah, (laughs) it was it was uh, pretty neat to to watch it. I just saw the saw the moon starting to peek out the other side of it for a few minutes, and then it occurred to me that it was forty degrees, and I was in my bare feet and bathrobe on the back porch. Perhaps I should go back to sleep. All right, uh, let's let's just get this Jeb and Amy. Let's get this over right now. All right, you know, go ahead, bitch and moan about how cold it is in Florida. It was forty degrees, and I was in my bare feet and my bathrobe on the back porch doesn't get any clearer than that <laughs> which which part of this jack is it you don't understand <laughs> I, I'm, I'm i guess i'm missing something here i just uh, don't get it yeah right <laughs> and i'm jack hodgson i'm talking to you from the ucab winter headquarters high atop lookout point in uh, we got our first measurable snow of the year last night nottingham Ooh, new hampshire cool. that's why Ooh, i didn't snowstorm and a blood red moon yeah mm-hmm. well Unfortunately, unfortunately, as a result, I didn't get to see the moon because it was cloudy. But, uh, but yeah. 
You know, I but this this actually prompts a question that's not on the list. Um, so, Amy, um, yeah. So as we know, as I know well, because you gave me a great ride last spring, uh, you've got the Kit Fox. Uh, uh-huh. and, um, Jeb belongs to, and he's recently got me involved with a, a motorcycle mailing list. Um, and uh, and and there's been <laughs> I'm a thread. Sorry, there's a thread. Sounds uh, so much like a blind date gone bad. Yeah, there's a thread that uh, has been just really gone crazy the last couple of days, um, talking about how late in the year, how long, much into the winter, do you ride your motorcycle? Aimed obviously at a lot of people up in the northern parts of part of the U.S. Although a lot of people are chiming in. Do you fly the kit? kit, kit fly? I mean, you live in Florida, so I guess it doesn't really apply. It's a silly question, but the answer is yes, I do fly the kit fox in the wintertime. However, um, I usually need a start cart to get it started on a cold day. It's, if it's much below 50 degrees, most of these cranky little engines and the Jabaroos are famous for it, um, oh, really? are a pain in the rear end to start. Uh-huh. So, um, and, and that's a function, too, sometimes of the way our batteries sit because our batteries get lazy because it's warm most of the time. Uh-huh. Um, you, you've got to make sure either that it's on the trickle charger for a day or two before a cold start and or it's just simpler to drag berries rear end out to the hangar and put the start card on it and it starts i'm holding the brakes he unhooks everything and i wave at him and leave yeah. <laughs> promptly what's the point and of it's ha- just easier that way yeah what's the point of having a resident <laughs> ap if you're not going to use him right yeah, yeah right exactly yeah. even when you have to be somewhere at 8 30 in the morning an hour away which yeah, yeah. Really you know, results in your amp with his slippers on standing in the driveway <laughs> <laughs> that's a picture i want to see uh but it, what's the you had a rotax in it prior right we did have a rotax i never had a problem starting the 582 honestly um Would, the jabber yes and that's probably the reason why the jabber was famous for being a little tough to start in cold temperatures mm-hmm. yeah but you gave up a uh, hot, hot water heat system for fresh air heat system. Yeah, pretty much. I shouldn't say gave up. You swapped. We swapped two for four and all of the various and sundry things. Now, the 582 was a wonderful engine. I never had a problem with it. But I had this guy who, like, every five hours did the maintenance that needed to be done to make sure it wouldn't stop. And those big <laughs> carburetors had rubber carburetor sockets that failed from the inside out. Yes, mm. I Fortunately, the two that failed on us failed on the ground on startup, which is a high vibration period of time. But the point is they failed. There were yeah. things yeah. on that engine that failed that Barry just just drove nuts and mm-hmm. he did yeah. not want to fly behind it forever. And so at 250 hours, we swapped it out. Yeah. Um, oh, there are a whole host thing. of things that you'd improved on by going to oh, the gym. gosh, yeah. Double the cylinders, uh, double the strokes, and who who doesn't want more strokes for the same? Well, thing? yeah, but I gotta I gotta tell you, it was it was two and a half three years before we had it tuned up right, such that the airplane performed as well as it did under with the five eighty two in it. There was more to the math than met the eye. Mm-hmm. And how, how much weight did you pick up in the process? We didn't. That's the point. It, it was a clean swap, weight-wise? It was a clean swap. There was a CG issue um, because the Jabber actually sat up uh, out about three extra inches. We literally had to do a new cowling 
which again made Mars kick and spit and go running. <laughs> so how did you, fiberglass? How did you deal with the CG issue? Did you just deal with the fact that the seat the, the ba- put the battery? We, we we really all we had to do was put the battery, which was now twelve volt instead of six volt, in the um, back okay. behind the baggage. So, and yeah. that fixed it right there. Mm-hmm. But but the cowling was more of a pain in the rear. Mm-hmm. There were some major cowling changes that had to be done yeah. to make it work. Yeah. Um, and then you get and into baffles and all that jazz. And, and let a, me so tell you from a cooling perspective, we went through four cylinders before we got it right in a plenum. And, you know, hmm. I mean, really? there was really? a lot going on. Two props. Yeah. Yeah. Getting getting back to uh, flying in the winter here for just one more moment. Um, it's kind of a cliche that uh, that it's that there are aspects of flying in the wintertime that are better in terms of the stability of the air and things like that. Oh um, gosh, yeah, but remember we don't have heated hangars, so if it does drop to thirty thirty five degrees, it's just as hard a start as it would be for you guys with your heated hangers and your preheat and all the right things. Yeah, okay. Well, what I really wanted to know about was uh, hang gliding, David. Do hang gliders fly all year round? Oh! Well, uh, yeah, we we were in Chattanooga uh, back just before Thanksgiving, and it's not like the the, the whittle of winter yet, or the middle of winter even. Uh <laughs> But it was. Uh, I'm just have another scotch. My, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna go ahead and m- mute my mic and just sit back and listen. To the rest yeah, of the show. really. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but we uh, we were at launch on Lookout Mountain, which is uh, about 13 miles south of uh, uh, Chattanooga, and uh, uh, watched towing operations go on there at Lookout Mountain Flight Park's landing field. And they were towing up to about 3,500 feet and releasing. And the temperature launch. I, I'm gonna. Go out on a limb. I didn't put a, a, a thermometer right on it, but I was going to say 47, 48 degrees tops, uh, with seven or eight knots blowing uh, uh, out of the uh, out of the southwest a little bit, and uh, it was nippy. I can imagine it was a good bit nippier uh, hanging under a wing up there. But keep in mind, most most pilots these days, most hang glider pilots these days, are flying in pod or what they call bullet harnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the only body parts exposed are uh, arms and head, uh, and you can insulate those pretty well. And they finally learned how to insulate control bars so that you didn't get heat sucked out of your fingers, even with good gloves on. Uh, heated gloves, long johns, uh, uh, the downside of winter flying is that you, you really are pretty much reduced to uh, ridge lift days. If you want to soar, oh yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Because you're not going to get a hell of a lot of convection. You might from time to time, but that's really a potluck, and it's a short thing. Like today's the shortest day of the year. Uh, the sun was never straight overhead, and at its you know peak of the day, it was so far off of uh, the horizon, uh, so much closer to the horizon than usual, that the ground never really got hot, even in in, in good sun. So. Right. Right, but yeah, yeah I, I I remember doing the Point Park uh, the Point Park round trip at Lookout Mountain two or three times in uh, around Thanksgiving and uh, New Year's Day one year. Ouch! Yeah, uh, and uh, just you know shaking shaking like uh, I was having a seizure by the time I got on the ground. I was mm-hmm. so cold; yeah. it was nuts. I got together uh, last Saturday morning with a bunch of listeners uh, for brunch at. Uh, 
at uh, Nashua Airport's uh, Midfield Cafe. And uh, we had three people fly in, and one of them flew in in a champ, um, correction, a a cub. um, And uh, he he flew his uh, no electrical system uh, cub down from uh, Lebanon, New Hampshire area. Uh, And uh, we said to him, he said, you got a heater in that thing? He says, yeah, I've got a heater. It it heats my left big toe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, He was all dressed up. Take a look at the heat exchanger on the mufflers, uh, on the exhaust system on those airplanes. There's not a lot there. Yeah. So he was all bundled up in his snowmobile gear and, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> I definitely wear thicker socks in the wintertime. I have the same same issues. As, uh, that's where you close the cold air vents and you hope that the that you can feel the engine through the firewall. Yeah, I know, man, because once it gets down to like 55 degrees, you really have to bundle up. <laughs> <laughs> that was, was, was Amy, that, a that, was a, that was a slam. <laughs> So uh, let's uh, see now. Uh, uh. I think both Dave and Amy called our attention to uh, the WSI, which is what weather something I. Um, it's uh, weather uh, services. It's Thank you. There we go. It's a meteorological uh, outfit, and they have recently published their 2011 hurricane season forecast. David, what do they say? Uh, well. They say that it's going to be a stormier season than average. Uh, now, let me get this straight. Didn't the hurricane season just end? Yeah. The 2010 it one. Really, it won't really begin again for a few weeks. No, no, no it doesn't. <laughs> June 1, actually. It's like no. over six months away or just six months away. It's... Uh, I don't know. It just seems like they're jumping the gun here. We were we were taking well, to task. That's why they call it a forecast. You want to make the forecast far ahead of the actual event. Yeah. Otherwise, no, it's way, observation. That way, the fuel speculators can go to work, hon. Yeah. Is that what it is? Okay. Yeah. The orange growers are, are making plans right now, right? And uh, how uh, else do you think they know how many water wipers to make? Yeah. Um, Anyways, so it's going to be a big one, they're saying, huh? A lot of they're storms. They're saying 17 named storms. Yeah. Nine hurricanes, five intense hurricanes, category three or greater. Uh, and that's well above the average from two, from 1950 to last year. Uh, the average was 10 named storms, six hurricanes, and two intense hurricanes. And uh, uh, slightly above the more active recent period of 1995 to 2010. And uh, this past year, they were they were pretty close to right on the money in their forecasts. Yeah, uh, I think it was a little less active than they expected, but that's right. only because Mother Nature knew we had an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, that's maybe that's what it is. Um, you know, Jeb is a rel- relatively new Florida guy, and and we have in the past, you know, um, taken him to task for the uh, relative sophistication of his hurricane plan. But um, Amy, you've lived down there a long time, right? All your life, a long time. Uh, on and off again yeah. for many years since like 1965. What, but, do you, um, what do you do to protect your airplanes when one of these things is is barreling down at you? Well, depending on the severity of one of these things barreling down, um, you get much past a Category 3, and you think you're going to take a dead hit, you leave. That's the only thing you can do oh, okay. to protect that's, anything that's you've Jeb's got. That's Jeb's strategy, too. See, I was just giving him a hard time about it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty straightforward. The runaway um, strategy. Run away. And, run away. 
and honestly, I mean, I live I live in new construction that was built to the highest codes. Um, but I was here through Hurricane Charlie, which which inadvertently turned into a four and just missed us. So we we basically took a beating of a category two, category three, and um, we did okay. But I wasn't happy about it. Right. And we did okay because it was a very um, tight storm and a very quick storm. I would have seen some significant damage had we gone a couple more hours of those kinds of pounding winds. It, does it make any difference to have your airplane in a hangar or tied out in the open? Yes, it does. Which is yes, better? Yes, it does. Uh, in a hangar is generally better, although Hurricane Charlie proved that if that hangar hasn't been serviced. In fact, right. I watched watched Barry out there um, changing out the tie-down bolts on the hangar mm-hmm. um, recently because it had gone 10 years, and he determined that those bolts had decayed to the point where they no longer had the tensile strength that they should have had. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, then it's time to replace them. If you don't do that kind of maintenance to your hangar, you run the risk that um, it ain't going to hold up because it's no longer to code. Yeah, the well, you're, thing, then you're a chest hanger pilot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeb, go ahead. Yeah, the other thing about uh, hangers and hurricanes is the doors. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay, you get a little bit of wind underneath the hangar door and it'll lift it right up and uh, be it's like opening a can of tuna. Mm-hmm. Well, and a friend of ours uh, had a... Uh, a really cherry 150. I believe it was a 150-150 in a hangar in Mississippi when Katrina went between his hangar and New Orleans. And it took the door off the hangar, but it left the airplane there. Hmm. Of course, it was boxed in a long, skinny container that said Reynolds Wrap, and it had a propeller on the box. I'll tell you what, it's it's very strange stuff. Uh, we had a neighbor of mine had his airplane up to Aircraft Depot for painting, and everything around the airplane was destroyed, including the airplane's control surfaces, which were off of it for painting, but the airplane itself was left untouched. Wow, it probably helped that the control surfaces were off of it, too. Yeah, Could have been. I mean, it's a very strange thing. But I can tell you that every airplane on the airport that was outside, damn near at the Punta Gorda Airport, was totaled. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And uh, uh, even even a lot of the airplanes that were in hangars um, were were wrapped or damaged because of the bad door, or I won't say bad doors, but doors that were not secured or, or had deteriorated or, or something like that. Right. They've changed the codes down there since then to recognize those issues. Mm-hmm. We, had a, we had a squall line come through. Uh, big frontal change when we had uh, Air Comanche out at Augusta Muni. And we're in a east-west row of hangars, and the doors face north, which is honestly kind of a pain in the butt in the wintertime. It uh, gets no sunlight, and uh, ice, you know, liquid can freeze in the tracks and all this nonsense. But this was summertime. We had thunderstorm weather. This big gust front came through, I don't know, 35 miles long, about two miles wide. Uh, the winds got almost into triple digits. And it lifted the doors off the tracks for our hangar. 
Mm-hmm. And when the airport manager mm-hmm. called, she says, I don't know what kept them from falling in, but one of them fell out and the other one's just kind of wedged there. And do you need your airplane soon? Because it looks like it's going to be a couple of days where we can get a forklift to raise the roof to unjam the door. No, no, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, just make sure it doesn't fall on my airplane in the meantime. But well, they've been through this before. They actually had a procedures page in their operations manual about huh. fixing this. Yep. You know, like well, you get this forklift. And then you use a strap to raise the door, and you use another cherry picker to, I mean, raise the roof, and then you use another cherry picker to stabilize the door. And then you start putting everything back together again. Maybe if they had a procedure to prevent this from happening in the first place. Well, that would have been, uh, you know, hangars actually constructed for Tornado Alley. And most of them ain't. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Um, so, Amy, I know that you have not had a chance to listen to uh, last week's episode of this podcast, but um, if you had, you would have heard us talking about the uh, news story where uh, uh, Continental Engines uh, Company, uh, TCM, um, has been sold to uh, uh, AVIC, AVIC, or whatever, a company uh, owned by the Chinese. And we kind of blathered on, as we are wont to do uh, on the subject, Uh Turns out that you have some genuine knowledge about. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, I heard the blather. Um. <laughs> um, so you actually visited um, what Avic or tell us what you you, you yes, were in China just yeah. recently, which you alluded to earlier, um, and uh, and you you visited these people. What did what did you find? What's it like? Well, um, they have big plans, darling. They have big plans. Yeah. Now, in, in your note, you said you said we should be very. You should we said we should be very afraid. Should we be afraid because they're going to do a good job or a bad job? Well, actually, I think that their plans are to make sure that Wichita isn't um, where the airplanes that that fill the the desires and needs of the aviators in China come from. I see. Okay. That's and there are good. lots and lots of people who want to fly private aircraft in China. And now the Chinese have decided that this is something that they do want to see happen. That's public knowledge. You've seen that everywhere. Yep. yep. Um, this air show was, was one of their, their fulcrum moments when they, they made that big announcement. Uh, they argued the point, which I thought was really interesting to look at. The, the Chinese arguing with their officials about what airspace should be opened and how, which was really hmm. quite quite interesting. I didn't realize there was that much discourse in China, mainland China, about these things. Um, but apparently can, there can is. Up a, can, can, Amy, can you back up a minute? Sure. What organizations were arguing with each other? Well, see, that's the beauty of it. Um, I sat in on press conferences where um, local authorities and, you know, that had authority over the airports were being told by business people, owners of factories, etc. And, of course, AOPA China was represented, you know, different organizations like that, that you need to give us more airspace. Well, that's just not Give natural. Freedom. I, I don't understand that. That's odd. Uh, okay. And apparently, we misunderstand how things work. There's a lot that works from a grassroots um, side 
that does affect change in China. It's a very different way of getting change because they don't have a democracy by any stretch of the imagination. But um, they do have a way of getting their officials' attention and saying, hey, we want to do this. Um, and the, well, fact the, way that, our, the way our rulemaking process works here is all not all that democratic. It's more bureaucratic and user-fed. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes the users get lucky and the regulators hear them. Agreed. Agreed. And, and, um, and, and I hear from other people that have been to China that uh, there's, there's, there's a, a mirror of that thing going on over there that people over here don't appreciate. Well, I, I wouldn't disagree with you about that, Dave. I really wouldn't. Um, my eyes were certainly opened. I, and now I went into this um, having been briefed by a couple of, of Chinese, now Americans, uh, who said, okay, it's, it doesn't work the same way there as it does here. And um, I said, okay, I believe you, I believe you. But um, it seems like there's a real groundswell towards creating general aviation over there. Um, there are quite a few people with the means, and mm-hmm. there are even more people, um, probably a hundredfold over that, with the desire. And companies such as Cirrus, and I, I put the pictures up there, guys, for you to take a look at, have put some it substantial... It says the pages that way. What's that? You can't I'm get locked there? Out. No, You're no. locked out? Yeah, must have known oh, who I was. That's a shame. I thought I shared it with you. Okay. Well, in any case, it's a shame you can't see it because there are airplanes that look like a um, Trinidad. There are, is the Epic, which Abic owns the rights to, um, and all the tooling, which it took back to China with it. Um, there is an airplane that could be a Lake Amphibian. There is an airplane that could be a Cirrus jet. There is an airplane that could be a CJ-2. And they're all real. And they're all now. And they're all domestic. They're all domestic, darling. And it's no mystery that the same company went out and purchased TCM. Hmm. Getting back to this. We we talked about this last week. Yeah. Yeah. China has been selectively picking off technology from people they wanted to emulate mm-hmm. for 40, 50 years. And we've kind of, uh, you know, our America's captains of industry, and, and, and to a certain extent, Europe's too, have always kind of, yeah, tut, tut, cluck, cluck, cluck. You know, it's the Chinese. They'll, they'll never really amount to a whole lot. It's just a lot of labor and not a lot of brains. And it's like, but, but you'd have to stand there in 150,000 square feet. I mean, you've never seen a building this big that had this stuff ready to roll with assembly lines. Oh, we've been whistling past the airport. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. And we've on the outside the of this massive building is every the tallest, most most fundamental buildings in the world, from the Burj to the to the um, World Trade Towers to the Statue of Liberty, painted on the outside of this building with Avix airplanes painted flying over them. Well, hmm. <laughs> Indonesia, okay. Indonesia, Spain, Italy, uh, China, Vietnam, Japan have all dabbled in in the aviation business, the aerospace business. 
several of them never got anything to sell outside their domestic markets because they could never get any regulatory authorities to certificate their equipment outside their own territory, their, their own their own home regulatory authorities. The exceptions are Japan. Mm-hmm. Pretty much it. Yeah. But China has started to figure out how to decode that, in my opinion. Uh, why did Honda establish Honda Jet in South Carolina? I mean, it's not like they couldn't mine the labor and expertise and the manufacturing hardware they needed right there in the home market. But doing that here, where the world's most accepted airworthiness authority is resident and in charge, is going to streamline it for every other part of the world. I think China's figured that out. They bought well, TCM for exactly, in my opinion, exactly that reason. Because TCM's not doing anything with its technology that China couldn't imitate in a, in, in, in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. They, no, no, no. Superior Air Parts is now there in China. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, so, I, I, but but my point is that I don't know that Avix really that hung up on selling these airplanes to the rest of the world. Everything I saw, Avix selling to the Chinese. Well, and, that's and they kinda, feel like that market is as big, if not bigger, than anywhere else in the world right now. Now, and that leads me to, leads me to one of my questions. But let me ask you another one first. Um, you mentioned earlier that that you feel like there's just a lot of people in China who want to fly GA. Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you characterize what those what what kind of flying are looking to do? Is it primarily personal flying or business flying or? Well, let's just say that Avix line starts with an LSA. It does. And it, goes up to a twin engine light jet. Okay. And there's about 10 airplanes in that line, including an Amphib. Yep. All okay. Right. I mean, uh, and, and, and the, my point is, and, and this is very typical China, too, because this is the same aircraft manufacturer that makes their fighter jets, is hmm. we have one company, and it will do the GA aircraft, and add just as it does these aircraft. You see what I mean? Yeah. Well, and they figured out that aviation beyond the military use mm-hmm. has real money-making, business-supporting potential. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, proliferating airplanes and airports and pilots in the interest of commerce, that's why all those business people in, Ch- in China or leaning on the government to open up more airspace, because without the airspace, all the airports, all the airplanes, and all the pilots in, in the nation uh, aren't going to be particularly useful with airspace ac- access constrained the way it has been for decades there. So I think we're seeing a real uh, epiphany among the Chinese officials, uh, a real need to change by the military that's always controlled the airspace. Oh yeah, uh, it surprised me in ten years they have no control over the airspace. Yeah. Well, it's come to critical mass there, and and I believe that the, the Chinese government has always been aware. When we get to this critical mass point, we need to change so that we maintain control. You yeah. know, the benevolent, you know, totalitarian regime, if there is such a thing. Yeah. Um. And despite the fact that you still find, you know, Nobel Prize winners in jail um, over there, and that's absolutely true, um, it, they're, they're, it's definitely a sense that you're in a different place. Um, there was definitely a feeling that 
things were changing and that um, there are hundreds of thousands of people who would like to participate in general aviation and have the means to do so and now are beginning to see that they can. And within a week of the announcements, um, and I know you guys talked about this, you know, one of the the richest, and they love to use this the richest term. Anyhow, one of the richest villages in China had already purchased 20 new aircraft. Whoa. I asked Ooh, the boys. Wow. I asked the boys this question last week when we were talking about this, Amy. I'll ask you now. What do you think the effect of all this will be on uh, aviation products and quality and whatnot around the world, and particularly here in the U.S.? Well, I I think in the beginning, very little effect. Um, But I think that the Cirruses and the Cessnas and the Bombardiers and the Embraers who have wanted into the Chinese market – and have have spearheaded some of this desire to have these goods, these luxury goods, and they are considered luxury goods, um, are going to be a little disappointed to discover that the Chinese have every ambition, and, and right they are, because they, they know how to keep their trade, import, export thing lined up in their favor. They have every intention of building these things themselves and serving their own market. And doing so, they're going to try to do it at a, at a high enough quality level um, that these people are not going to want to go outside mm-hmm. of uh, China and spend the extra money to buy a Bombardier product versus an AVIC product. I mean, that that was the party line that was touted to me. Now, whether they can succeed they're looking at for it respect. or not. They're yeah. looking for respect. Yeah. Um, we need to move on, but Amy, I, one last question from me, anyways. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe a different subject, but what is uh, in China? What is uh, women in aviation like in China? Actually, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, there are quite a few women who either want to be involved or are in the process of being involved in aviation in China. I was excited to see women in the Chinese Air Force who I got to meet and talk with. I was excited that there were at least six um, Chinese aviation aerospace or technical universities that had aviation programs that were represented at the Zuhai China Air Show. And of those six, every single one of them had women involved at um, one phase or another in flight training um, or flying the aircraft not just as flight attendants. Um, that was quite exciting. And they seemed very interested in um, us and what we were doing. And mm-hmm. I had the opportunity. I had a translator with me, so I had the opportunity to talk to people um, at length. Met with um, a woman who is a factory owner, very successful um, entrepreneur from the Guangdong province, which has been a free trade uh, experimental zone now for 20 years and she's got 37 hours and a 172 in China mm-hmm. um, as a student pilot and she was quite excited to be involved with AVIC's uh, Little Eagle 500 project which is it, it looked to me a lot like a Trinidad quote, clone um, but in any case uh, there are women there who either are participating in both uh, commercial or general aviation on one level or another. And I believe that the potential to see it 
there was no real reason in today's world why women should represent less than 30 or 40 or 50% of participation as pilots, mechanics, whatever. Agreed? Not agreed. Agreed. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay, I, so... I feel you, the same way about men as flight attendants. Well, there you go. If, Not that I really want to see that, but... Well, but my point is, if you start at a ground level in today's society, we're not in uh, 1903. Right. We're, we're in 2010. There's no reason why there couldn't be just as many women involved. And in fact... Um, in terms of uh, engineering and in terms of uh, the air, airspace and airport um, and aviation authorities in China, well, I got a picture of the like the Grand Marshal Lady of of the whole Zuhai Air Show, the woman who was placed um, top dead center in a lovely pink suit at the opening ceremonies. The head honcho in charge was a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so cool. that yeah. that tells you that um, as far as the CAAC is concerned, which is the equivalent of our FAA, um, ain't really no difference. Mm-hmm. And I believe well, that that women in aviation um, could help to bring that about in China. Anybody have any final thoughts on China and the whole thing before? We well, while we're, while we're talking about threats to Wichita's, you know, among Wichita's largest businesses, uh, little news that came out of Wichita today, you know, there's been a uh, ongoing uh, sense of crisis here for several months that Hawker Beechcraft might take an offer to move to Mississippi huh. or move a lot of jobs to Mexico, some of which they're doing, some of which they've already done. Uh, news this afternoon out of uh, the new uh, uh, Aviation Training Center uh, uh, press conference there that Hawker Beach has uh, come to terms on a $45 million incentive package, uh, state, county, and city money that guarantees that Hawker Beechcraft will uh, stay here until 2020. Uh, and I'll start selling lottery tickets on 2021 right after the podcast. So if anybody wants to ping me, you know where to. Jeb, China? Just thinking about Chinese generally and and, uh, how they're they're boosting their domestic economy and uh, how um, um, women are becoming involved in that, and all of which is great. I I come back to an old saying, and it's this. Um, my family's had problems with immigrants ever since we came to this country. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Moving uh, on. Moving on. Uh, Jeb, what's a pocket airport? I've never heard well, this term before. I've never heard this before either. And, really? Um, I, no, I never really had. Um, <clears throat> let me close that. Um, pocket airports. Uh, this is an article in um, Gizmag. I presume this is a Gizmodo spinoff or something, um, and uh, it's a sum. It sums up uh, something NASA put together, the the Green Flight Challenge, um, and, uh, and really not a summary of that, but uh, kind of a, a an adjunct to this Green Flight Challenge, um, and. Uh, basically, um, a, a, an organization partnered with NASA, the Comparative Aircraft Flight Efficiency 
uh, uh, organization. Now we've we've heard of cafe races uh, some uh, in the past. Uh, uh, very uh, very efficient aircraft uh, racing cross country to Oshkosh, for example, for AirVenture. Um, they come up with this concept of pocket airports and suburban air vehicles, taking off and landing at small neighborhood quote pocket airports unquote. Um, last week, um, Cafe President Brian Seeley um, made a presentation outlining this concept and um, basically talking about just uh, maybe a 2,000-foot runway uh, in a neighborhood, um, highly autonomous aircraft seating two to four people, um, going maybe 120 knots, very quiet, perhaps electric-powered, certainly uh, uh, very quiet uh, internal combustion engines of them. Um, shuttling people back and forth from the neighborhoods to uh, other pocket airports, uh, to uh, uh, larger regional or, or commercial airports, uh, before they catch another plane or they go to the you know some some other transportation mode to get to their destination. And all of this is well and good, and it's certainly updated to to uh, recognize current technologies. Um, but I, I mean, I was seeing the same kind of story back in Popular Science and Popular Mechanics magazines back in the 50s and 60s. And um, it didn't happen then. It, it, it's, there's, there's no reason to think that it's going to happen now if for no other reason than just land use policies and um, uh, safety concerns, um, local politics, and uh, what's going to happen when you start throwing a bunch of uh, small aircraft into the same piece of airspace. Yeah. So, uh, this, is, uh, this got a, a lot of attention I don't know, 15 years ago as part of NASA's Advanced General Aviation Transport Experiment. Use of uh, GPS, ADSB, moving maps, highway in the sky, uh, synthetic vision. Uh, you could pretty much put a runway anywhere you could put, you know, two city blocks of street. Right. And not need any ground infrastructure to support. Uh, guidance for the operations there because that would all be part of actually technology that we're using right now. Yeah. Uh, but like Jeb said, you know, the real the real uh, uh, speed bump in all this is the neighbors and yes. the neighborhood zoning requirements and because we came across this uh, 30 years ago when everybody was all gaga about tilt rotor technology being able to bypass suburban airports and let people go city center to city center to these urban heliports that were going to spring up to support the tilt rotors. And everybody in the tilt rotor community was excited about it. And in the regional airline and business aviation communities was excited about it. And nobody that lived within three city blocks was going to get excited about it. And well, that's any, where it stopped. Does anybody remember the old, um, um, program that Walter Cronkite hosted back in the 60s called the 21st Century. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They did a lot of stories on this. I mean, the first time I ever saw a Harrier, and it was an early Harrier, um, a VTOL uh, jet, fixed-wing jet, um, taking off and landing. The first time I ever saw any, any pictures of that or any video of that was on that program. And this basic, this, this basic concept of, you know, Point to point from your departure point, your your home or your your neighborhood to your your uh, your ultimate destination, whether it's your office or um, 
um, you know, making a, a business call or, or recreation or some other. All that has been out there for so long, and it's just never gotten off the ground. The closest we're going to get to that is your local general aviation airport flying from it to another local general aviation airport. Or, um, or, or Jeb, quite frankly, the community that you live in or I live in, quite exactly. frankly, is yeah. actually even closer. It is. I, I, I was going to go there next. But, yeah, the, the, the residential air park um, is about as close as you're going to get to this. And um, as, as Amy, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything, um, you have to have uh, a certain set of circumstances to make all that work. And um, I'm sure... I, I don't know anything, you know, I'm not foretelling anything, but I'm sure that uh, there has to be certain things that continue to fall into place to make all of that work uh, for, with local politics. And, uh, you know, 50 years from now, as Sarasota expands east, there's not, there's not much future in expanding Sarasota to the west. As Sarasota expands to the east, um, who knows what this area could look like and who knows what kind of pressures could be on it to to um, um, do away with the airport here. Well, and you guys are lucky. You've got that big state park wrapping around one side of you. That's true. That, mm-hmm. you know, even if they stopped keeping it as a state park, it'd be a really tough place to build on. Well, it would be. And and uh, it's it's very soft over there. It floods with great regularity. We've uh, we've got a big dike here that, you know, tries to keep the water out. Um, I, I, I the concept is is um, it's not something we've ever it, it's it's not a new concept. It's refined, um, but it just it, it ignores a lot of different realities. And I think we're probably about as close as we're going to get to that already. Could be. Could be. Running out of time here. Uh, you guys, look, oh. at the, look at the rest of the list and see if there's something in here you want to talk about. Anybody? Oh, there's, oh, there's a list? list? Oh, is there a list? Oh, there is a list. <laughs> oh, Amy, it's with I- the iPad as a primary navigation device. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, How many that. times can you say no? Well, now, before you go too far down this road, Amy, um, you, you don't know that Jeb is now a proud iPad owner. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care. He knows it's, it's, as well as I do it's that not, you can't use yeah. it for primary navigation. It can get you close, hon. Okay. Jeb, what are we talking about here? What's the story it's that came out? It's just good enough to get your ass in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah waiting it's, for my brow. Waiting for it's, my browser to load this. This is um, um, an alert bulletin. This is published by NAFINET, uh, NAFI National Association of Flight Instructors, um, and uh, basically is a, um, a public a summary of um, uh, NASA Aviation Safety Reporting System report. Two of them actually, um, and distributed through FAA and, and some of the trade associations. Um, but basically, um, a guy uh, was using his iPad as a primary navigation device. Now, what do you mean Not, by primary navigation? He was using it as his <laughs> VOR, as instead his GPS. Instead of a map. Well, instead of uh, dead reckoning, instead of uh, a VOR, instead of a handheld GPS or a panel-mounted GPS, he's using an iPad, a consumer device, okay. for his, navi- his primary. And what happened? What was the problem? Um he basically strayed into some class delta airspace or class C. I can't remember what it was. Class delta airspace. Um, um, 
can't remember can't can't decode the um the uh, he ended up where he wasn't supposed to be based on the ipad right right according to the ipad he was outside the airspace yeah now he was zooming in and out on the ipad and according to him um the position plotted on the ipad and he didn't say which software he's using so that's um um an interesting question but uh, zooming in and out, the um, uh, placement of the airplane icon on the moving map shifted mm-hmm. as you zoomed in and out. And I'm not sure which direction and, and whether it was the zoom in or the zoom out that, that changed the position. But the point is that at one, at one point, um, he thought he was outside the Delta airspace. He zoomed in, and all of a sudden, he's plotted inside the airspace. Right. And um, that's not a good thing. Uh, you, know, you can argue... No, he shouldn't have been using the iPad as his primary navigation device. Period. Um, it, it's not a. Uh, it's not designed for that. Uh, not uh, certificated or certified for any of that. Um, uh, not it doesn't a, not a promise thing. to be that. Exactly. It's not. It, it, it probably comes with all kinds of disclaimers not to use it for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so there's a whole lot of stuff that comes into play. The refresh rate of the GPS engine playing against how the the map updates itself uh and i've talked to a couple of business aviation pilots that have bought uh efb software hoping to make the ipad replace their chart bag and what they've discovered was that in certain environments it seems to overheat and shut down and it's, that's well, don't, pretty interesting, on, by the way. Don't leave it on the glare shield. And so, well, we, we we leaned it up against the pedestal, which, by the way, generates its own heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's some uh, there's some issues there. Not saying it's not a great product for a lot of things, but maybe uh, cockpit ain't the best so far. Yeah. Well, it, I, it's it's like any other electronic device in the cockpit, and and. I had reason to research this a little bit here in the last couple of days. Um, you know, the, the, the FARs giveth and the FARs taketh away. Uh, in this instance, FAR, um, I think it's 9121, um, says basically, you know, no one may use a personal electronic device under IFR, period. And then that's, you know, subsection A. And subsection B is... Subsection A may be disregarded in the following circumstances. (laughs) 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 So the fars taketh away and then the fars giveth back. Yeah, right. You got to love it when there's that kind of clarity in the regulation. Basically, you're always wrong is what it boils down to. Anytime you're reading the fars, you have to, you know, be, uh, have to approach it with something of a sense of humor. <laughs> okay. You just you just um, need to you just you just you just need to understand that they were written so that the FAA can be right whenever it wants to be. Exactly. Right. exactly. Yeah. There uh, yeah, go. there's this actual catch-all clause who's a, a, a bad cousin to Santa Claus. There's this catch-all clause that basically gives them uh, not that they abuse it, heaven knows. But they uh, they can almost always find a way to come back and say, yeah, but. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's the one that Jeb likes to quote all the time, Careless and Reckless, right? Careless and Reckless. Mm-hmm. Is it 03 or 13 or something? That's the one, and that's why I had my very first tattoo. My left cheek says, yeah, and my right cheek says, but. 
<laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so uh, India. <laughs> so using the iPad for as a primary navigation device, bad idea. Um, yeah. All the other things well, we've been. This is important because there are folks that have sold that have offered airplanes as an iPad version of the airplane with a docking station in the panel to put the iPad sure. in. That's true. Sure. Yeah. And, okay. and it's hidden just on the very, you know, in the realm of, yeah, well, okay, don't give up your 496 for an iPad. Uh, there are people really promoting this idea, this use. Yeah, there are. Uh, and we're talking LSAs and or uh, ultralights um, for that. But uh, uh, and to an extent... That might not be a bad thing. Okay, let me let me clarify that. Um, if you're purposely poking around, this is Southern California airspace, some of the, the the densest in the country. If you're purposely poking around that, um, and and depending on a, a non-aviation device to navigate, um, maybe you should stop and rethink some of this. Yeah. Um, poking around at airspace with a VOR or a or a uh, um, a panel mount GPS or even a <clears throat> excuse me a, a, a an aviation grade portable GPS is one thing, but poking around it um, uh, with a consumer grade device is probably not you know, the best choice. Yeah, that's I've, I've, you're you're coming to the nub of a of a we'll call it a discussion just to keep it on the kind side. Between a couple of uh, uh, friends of mine and 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 me and, and and a couple of different guys, over, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can use the iPad. You can use a couple of tablet computers to do this, and you can save a lot of money. But then you got to add this and you got to add that. And at the end of the day, what are you getting? You're getting something that's not designed to be doing what you're doing, or you can spend more and you can get a six ninety six, or you can get an Aviator Ace. It's actually designed to do the stuff that you're doing with it with refresh rates and upgrade rates and, and, and the, the, the horsepower to do it in, in, in an airplane environment well, and give you a fairly reasonable confidence that if it says you're here, that's where you are. Yeah, I, I, would, I would disagree with that on one level, and that is um, my limited and extremely limited experience so far with the iPad. Um, it does a pretty good job, uh, in some ways better than uh, 396, of displaying charts. Char- you mean? Dis- doing what I want it to do, which is displaying charts. Okay. Yeah. There it's, you go. It's it's, it's yeah. head and shoulders above a 396, and it's I don't doubt certainly that. certainly as good, if not better, than the 696. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of things about it compared to the 696. For one, it's a lot lighter than a 696. Secondly, oh. I think it's faster. Third, I think the screen's bigger. I haven't put the two of them side by side. It's one-sixth uh, the money. One-sixth the money. Yeah, really, yeah. exactly. And, and, and when I'm using it to display a chart, uh, it does a very nice job of doing that. Now, um, the, uh, the other thing that an iPad will do, if you have the, the 3G version with the built-in GPS or you have an external GPS attached to it, it will plot, depending on the software, it will plot your position on that same chart. I think we have to take that position plotting with a grain of salt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think you and I are all that far a beam on this. I don't think so either. You no, know, I uh, agree with I'm you. I'm talking it's... in terms of using it as a navigation device. Right. Uh, with or without 
you know, uh, wow, geo-referencing is cool. Yeah. But, you know, if you're that ham-fisted in your navigation, I question why you got through your check ride. Right. Well, yeah, depending on how long ago your check ride was. You um, just, you got to always know where you are. Yeah. You can't, you know, you can't be trusting, you know, you go into Tampa airspace and they have been, Tampa is one of the places with a class Bravo airspace where they were very careful to draw the class, class Bravo so that if you're on the right side of the road, you're out. And if you're on the yeah. left side of the road, you're in. Things like that. Yeah, it's 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 such a rarity of common sense and logic that we question origin. I don't think it could have come from the FAA. I think it had to come from a higher power. <laughs> <laughs> Something came from a higher power. Anytime, anytime, uh, uh, yeah, anytime uh, FAA uh, uh, matters make sense. Something going on. Yeah, you know, it's like the TSA making sense one day. I would have to lay down and have another drink. <laughs> Not that, no, 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 no. Don't do that for us. Okay? Yeah, right. Yeah, David, David, you're safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not worried. I don't keep an extra bottle of scotch around because of that possibility. Yeah. Well, we, actually, we I do, but it's an airline single. Yeah. We don't want to turn this into a TSA or, or a political podcast, but I see a news item today where they've TSA has started. Random bag searches in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area subway system. Oh, yeah. You're talking about luggage, right? Bags, purses, knapsacks. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to make sure that wasn't an anatomical reference. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Uh, Yeah, okay. Uh, Yeah, Jeb, not a general aviation story, but sobering nevertheless. Yes, yeah. Well, it's a general aviation story in the uh, in in the vein of if you don't want to go through that crap, get a license in an airplane for the time being. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, uh, sh- I think we're good on that. Yeah, shout outs. What do we got here? I got a couple of shout outs here. Um, oh, um, oh, oh, did you know that um, for the seven for the seventy uh, fifth, I believe it is, anniversary of the DC 3s first flight on December seventeenth. That um, my friend Julie Felucci released a new book about the history of the DC three. No, really, what's it called? What's the uh, uh, what's the info? Uh, God, he would have to ask me what it's called. All right, well, we got the web in front of us here. We can okay, figure this out. Well, in any case, it's being released by ASA, and you should be able to get it um, next month sometime. And it is a comprehensive history with a storytelling bent. And um, the storyteller is herself, uh, Julie Pellucci, uh, nay, uh, Julie Boatman, who is oh, yeah. a writer oh, yeah. extraordinaire. That's, you know, happy 75th DC3, uh, happy 65th uh, Bonanza. Yeah. Uh, Here we go. Hurt? Here we go. Um, a new book chronicles the legendary DC-3. Uh, ASA announces a new book to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the first DC-3 flight in December 1930. Fly. Together We Fly, Voices from the DC-3 is the story of an aircraft like none other, a true legend that is literally an icon in the industry and one of the most recognized aircraft in history. And it goes on. 
Um, author Julie Boatman Felucci weaves a fascinating story introducing the reader to the people that helped make the DC-3 seem larger than life and greater than the sum of its parts. That sounds cool. It is. It's actually very, very cool. And she's been throwing out little teaser excerpts on her Facebook page, which has just been wonderful. Yeah. Together We Fly, Voices from the DC-3 by Julie Felucci. Very good. Well, it only... A year earlier, Douglas Aircraft Corporation had flown a little bird called the DC-2, which only about, I think, what, 18 or 20 some odd were built. And the year before that, they had the DC-1. So, you know, look what evolution does. The DC-3 is still with us 75 years later. And one DC-2. Clay Lacey owns that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shoutouts. Let's see now. Um, so I, f- I came across an interesting website the other day. Um, most everybody knows about the Internet Movie uh, Database, uh, IMDb, uh, the go-to source for information about uh, uh, movies and actors and actresses and so forth. Um, and a number of different sub- uh, uh, subject areas are kind of simulating that um, and and creating um, website databases for finding information about those subjects. And so now there's one about called the Internet Movie Plane database. Um, it uh, is a, a website database that uh, where you can look up um, all sorts of movies that have aircraft appearing in them. And uh, I think you can search by types of aircraft and names of movies and I don't know what else, but uh, just thought it was kind of interesting. It's relatively new. It may or may not have as much information as as it as it you know ought to, but uh, it's a it's a, a a nice attempt. And uh, I think we all ought to use it and encourage it to uh, improve itself. Um, yeah, this is fun. All four Indiana Jones movies are on the list. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's, you know, the, the point here is not to necessarily, you know, because it is not so much to highlight movies that have had airplanes, but to highlight the scenes where airplanes have appeared. So right. just in the same way that you want to look up all the movies that Harrison Ford mm-hmm. has been in, um, I want to look up all of the movies that have contained a Sikorsky MH-53 Pavlo, all right, um, because that's my airplane, you know, or whatever. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting idea, and uh, it's impdb.org, um, the Internet Movie Plane Database.org, and uh, you can... Uh, Look up your favorite airplane and see what movies it's been in. Or look up one of your favorite movies and see if it's even listed. Yeah. Yeah, it's neat. They've got the movie list, an aircraft I list, didn't work here. an unidentified aircraft list. Yeah. And it's actually a wiki, so I, I think that, you know, you know, for example, if you find one of these unidentified ones, you could go in and, and, and uh, you know, fill it out and describe what it really is. And, uh, so, anyways, cool stuff. Other shout-outs? Yesterday, in Greensboro, North Carolina, mm-hmm. the Honda Aircraft Company made the first flight of its Honda conforming uh, certi- certificated or uh, a certi- certification candidate. How's that? Okay. Uh, first, first conforming Honda jet uh, made its first flight yesterday. Cool. Now, but now, what does that mean? Conforming? I, the, basically, it's the certification candidate. It's the one that they. Uh, it conforms to their their final design, and it's the one that they're going to try to put through certification. As opposed to what? As opposed to like a prototype that's flown that's not. That as opposed as to their, the prototype that they flew several years ago. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, as opposed to a proof of concept or proof yeah. of uh, of uh, a form, where everything underneath the 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 wetted area could be non-producible. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, we've got lots of examples of that over the history of aviation. Uh, the very first Starship was a, uh, what was it, 85% scale model of what yeah, the original like was going to yeah. be. Yeah. Uh, the very first Visionaire Vantage was absolutely a one-off. There was no way in hell you were going to produce that in mass production, except the outside lines conform to the aerodynamic ambitions of the designer. So you can be a prototype, and you can be a prototype that's conformal, and conformal is what moves you to certification. <laughs> okay. Um, but congr- real quick, yeah, yeah. again, congrats to Honda Jet, uh, Honda Aircraft. Uh, real quickly, um, um, the aircraft is scheduled for its first delivery in the third quarter of 2012. It'll cost you $4.5 million. Um, it will do a top speed of 420 knots, maximum altitude of 43,000 feet. Ooh, that's going to be and nice. It, it, That'll and, be the and trick. for its size and weight, that is one big cabin. Yeah, yeah. It really is. Uh, the, the, putting the engines on the pylons on the wings freed up so much cabin space because it's it's really quite remarkable. It looks too small from the outside and bigger than it ought to on the inside. Mm-hmm. Hey, it has a full potty. It does mm-hmm. have a full potty. Yeah. Well, that's what listen, you get when you don't have that uh, when you don't have that uh, that thrust carry through that engine mount spar going through the aft part of the fuselage. It frees up a lot of space. Yeah. Well, yeah. there you go. That makes the four million dollars not such a big deal. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to write a check, but if if I had a Powerball winning ticket tomorrow night, there you go, Jack. If you, you have go, to, yeah. if you have to talk dollars, then it's probably not for you. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. No, no, no. Because that means I'm never going to own an airplane. <laughs> um, shout outs. Who's got anything else? Anybody? Anybody? Uh, Bueller. Just real quick, this uh, this gentleman up in uh, Lake Chaps, Washington, Lionel Lamero. He's an EAA guy. He conceived this idea of using the uh, tracking function of his GPS to come up with some kind of like skywriting, except without the smoke. Right. And he created a map, uh, put in the plots that he wanted, the waypoints, the turn points, and in flying his his, uh, airplane across uh, parts of Washington State, he spelled out, Merry Christmas. Yeah. It's kind of cool. And we got the link. And uh, it's like, what a cool idea. Yeah. Nice stuff. Nice stuff. Hey, definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Let's see. Uh, uh, Thank you to uh, Amy Laboda for being with us tonight. Uh, Amy is a uh, a world traveler uh, and also a freelance (laughs) aviation writer and the editor-in-chief of Aviation for Women magazine. Amy, where can people find you and all your your goings-on on the Internet? Ah, you can find me at afwdigital.org or aviationforwomen.org or wai.org. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation journalist as well, uh, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? Um, jeburnside.com, aviationsafetymagazine.com, sometimes adweb.com, and sometimes aea.net. And Dave Higdon, an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist and and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where are you on the Internet? 
Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, aviationsafetymagazine.com, uh, davehigdon.biz, or, uh, you know, Google the name, and uh, then do a roll of the dice. You might find theoretical physics really interesting. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips and cool audio clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, web page of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Well, if you want to live to be as old as Santa, and there's a guy with a lot of air time once a year, go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Ho, freaking ho. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Merry Christmas, TTFM. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.